everyone. Welcome again to the Anti-Genocide Coffee Break, a multinational podcast. I am your host, Elisa von Jürgen-Forgi, and I am here again with my two co-hosts, Irene Victoria Massimino and Hoshman Ismael. We are happy to be greeting you yet again on our second podcast. Um, and you can find our podcast on Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and on Spotify, so S-P-O-T-I-F-Y. We are on both of those platforms. You can also find us at our website for the Iraq Project for Genocide Prevention, and that's at IraqProject.org. That's IraqProject.org. All right. So today, <laughs> hi, Irena. Yeah. Hi, Hoshma. Hi. Hi, Irena. Hi, Hoshma. Thank you. Yeah, Hello, everyone. Guys, yeah. <laughs> so today we're well. going to be doing our regular podcast um, uh, segments, starting with In the News and then moving on to In Depth, uh, then moving on to What's Your View? And we'll be discussing the pandemic um, and inequality in that section. Then a brief Iraq update, and then we will sign off talking a little bit about what's upcoming in our next podcasts. So shall we start well, with then. In the News? Fantastic. Yeah, There's, looking that, forward to great, it. Yeah. 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 There's always so much Absolutely. going on, unfortunately, related to genocide, not just in Iraq, but worldwide. So in this segment, um, we will go over on a weekly or biweekly basis some of the new news items updating our listeners on, um, on what the status is in different parts of the world that, that we're watching. So, Irena, would you like to start? Yes, certainly. Thank you, Elisa. Thank you. And hello, Hoshman, as well. Hello, everyone. Um, yes, I would also like to add that some of this news will also be covered in depth in future podcasts as well. And we hope to be inviting people, experts in the field that can cover it, in particular when we're talking about regions, different regions, um, as we will be covering today a little bit. So I want to start with uh, a headline uh, about China. So a recent report came out on the Uyghur genocide. Mm. It was done by the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy in cooperation with the Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights. The report was written by experts in the field and it concludes that the People's Republic of China bears state responsibility for committing genocide against the Uyghurs in breach of the 1948 mm. Genocide Convention. Mm. So this is something that we probably will uh, cover in future podcasts and we'll invite some experts to talk about it. This is recent and I read that uh, it has been going on for a while and it's been on the headlines here in Argentina actually for quite a while even during the mm. pandemic. We'll make the the, I just going to sorry yeah. just jumping in. We'll yeah. make that um report available on our uh, Patreon site as well as on our website as well. So Certainly. so listeners who want to go check out the report um you can do so at those places. Certainly. Yeah. Certainly. It's it's a very well done one and it's very interesting because they've collected a lot of information in the field and they've analyzed all of this information to come out with this important conclusion. Mm. So wonderful. We'll make it available. 
And the second news is, well, Myanmar has made it back to the headlines recently. I'm sure most of you know, of course. Uh, on February 1st, 2021, the military seized control of the government, putting um, recently re-elected Prime Minister Aung San Suu Kyi in jail, along, along with other members, uh, civilian members of the government. Although, of course, most of you know as well, Myanmar has been in the news for quite a few years now, and not for good reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, since 2017, its military and heads officials have been accused of genocide, along with the country itself, which has been accused by the Gambia under the International Court of Justice, ICJ, for genocide against the Rohingya who in August till December 2017 fled to the neighboring country of Bangladesh, about 800,000 to 1 million Rohingyas um, left the country. Many others were killed and many women were victims of sexual abuse. So this is something we would like to also go in depth in, in future podcasts. So I hear, um, Hoshman, probably you have some news as well to share with us and with our audience. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, there are a lot of things going on in this world. I was, um, yeah, I heard about, um, I'm going to the other side of the world in Africa, what's happening? And he mm -hmm. says, like I hear that Islam, um, Islamist militants are beheading children as young as 11 in Mozambique. So it's like mm -hmm. in northern province of uh, Cabo Delgado. Mm -hmm. Um, and it says that the mother is watching their children being beheaded. To to so, um, she watched uh, one of the mother watched her uh, 12 year old son was killed, and um, this is horrible. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I and uh, finally, I, I was like, um, searching of what's going on and uh, found out that this group, um, again is part of this ISIS thing that they did the horrible thing against the Yazidis, the Christians in the north of Iraq and the Kurds in the north of Syria and all this. So it's horrible. Um, this um, mm. um, type of uh, horrible organizations never go away. And um, mm -hmm. uh, in, they, they call them they call them Al-Shabaab, uh, which means the youth in Arabic. Mm. And uh, mm -hmm. this reflects that uh, receives its support mostly from young unemployed people um, mm. in that area. Um, hmm. in, in that de, Delgado, uh, sorry for my pronunciation. Uh, it's very good, part of, Yeah, yeah, it's a part of uh, Mozambique. And um, also, I think this um, March 16th, um, it's a kind of remembrance day for the genocide that was committed by Saddam Hussein's regime, you know, mm. against the Kurdish people in Alabja. I'm not sure. It probably, but many many people have heard about it. it was uh, It was uh, happened in 1988. Um, it's a long time ago. It's about 33 years ago. Um, so there would be nine, March 16 will be the day, and um, uh, it's, it's horrible. And it was kind of a, a series of gas attacks on the town of Halabja. Five thousand people were killed in one day. Mm -hmm. Ten thousand yes. people scarred for life. So it was horrible. Yeah. Um, so, um, kind of, it was just, um, Halabja was, this attack just came after the Anfal campaign launched against the Kurds in the north mm -hmm. of Iraq, and it continued that campaign that is called mm -hmm. Anfal campaign, Anfal, uh, so it was a kind of, uh, the Anfal 
means uh, spoils or in in Arabic, mm-hmm. and um, it was carried out against the Kurds and uh, finally led to 180,000 people got killed or buried alive in just a couple of mm-hmm. years. And um, so it was um, Saddam Hussein's notorious cousin Chemical Ali was convicted and uh, for that. And uh, but. Um, you know, like this created a question in my head and uh, whether uh, genocide can be uh, committed by one man. Mm. Because you, you see, like, if you just bomb the whole city and you kill the whole people, that means, you know, this is a kind of um, theoretical argument for whether genocide can be committed by one man or, you know, whether it only can be committed by a group of people or a state. But um, here it goes. It's interesting, but that kind of question, we can mm. discuss it in uh, our future podcasts, uh, obviously. Uh, so yeah, this is for me today, yeah. and um, I don't want to take um, you know more well, time. So back to you, Ellie. Yeah. That's a really important anniversary, um, the anniversary of Halabja. I remember this is just a personal story, but I remember I was in college when Halabja occurred Mm. in New York City. I was at Columbia University, and suddenly all over um, the neighborhood, someone had put up um, flyers with that very iconic photo from Halabja. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hoshman, do you remember what it's called? I forget. There's an iconic photo of a man cradling his baby um, lying on the ground, and both their faces are white with the chemicals that killed them. Um, so I forget Absolutely. what it's called, but it's become kind of like a pieta, right, for mm-hmm. for the Halabja genocide. And that was really my first introduction to modern day genocide, that this is a problem mm-hmm. that is continuing. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it, and it's a very it's still now little known. Do you know, I marvel often that that someone had put up these flyers all over New York City. And yet still now, most people in the world have not heard about Halabja, I think, or even perhaps yeah. Anfal. These are kind of forgotten, smaller cases. Yeah, Irena. Certainly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, certainly. I was just thinking yeah, of that. It's one of the old. claims. Sorry, it's one of the claims of. Of, of the people actually mm-hmm. of the region that they, it has to be recognized internationally. Mm-hmm. But I think we also get lost a little bit and I I don't know, maybe we're, we're uh, uh, sliding a little bit far away from the news segment, but it gets lost in the academia, this argument of whether it was or was not genocide and this yeah. happens all the time. Yeah. And the denial or the pushing for a genocide to be recognized as genocide or a crime to be recognized as genocide. And I think that has a lot to do with that forgotten, maybe smaller Mm -hmm. in terms of numbers, right? Not in terms of importance, but in terms of numbers, maybe those sort of forgotten genocides. So it's an important uh, day to remember, certainly. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean that's that's I, one. I was only ten years old at the time uh, when this has happened, and I can remember that uh, mm-hmm. when um, oh, because uh, where I was living at the time was just about an hour of driving uh, far from Halabja, and uh, I hear that uh, what's happened on that day, and it was completely disaster, and like everyone says that um, well, it was around eleven o'clock in the morning, and uh, when this has happened, and uh, within minutes, like the artillery pounds began to exploit the whole Halabja plains and began dropping bombs on the town. You know, the bombs were like concentrated first in the northern side, but then 
by by now in within two hours he killed like so many people and uh, so it was it was horrible and uh, I could see that how people ran away from this some of them went to Iran and others uh, um, uh, came to Suleimania area um, and uh, even uh, some of the babies were found and taken to Iran and then they they were adopted mm. you know the case of Miriam who later like. Um, uh, came back to Halabja, and uh, um, it, it was a very emotional story. And um, it's on the BBC, and we will put it on a mm. website uh, for mm. anyone who wants to mm. to watch. Yeah, and um, yeah, really a sad, a sad time. Uh, yeah. I can, you know, I, I have apart from the fact that I have uh, read a lot about it, but uh, also I um, I can remember very well of what happened yeah recall recall your personal experience Hoshman yes certainly yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean even my father yeah my father I'm sorry my father like yeah um, found someone in the street he was very um, he lost all his conscious and um, so he brought it back to the house and then when he came back to he was recovered a little bit he couldn't he didn't know anyone Wow. So and uh, so we looked after him for three four months. Then we took him back to, ah. you know, the somewhere around Halabjer, But he didn't. He couldn't recognize anyone. So he he lost uh, his mind. And uh, oh. yeah, uh, oh, terrible. yeah, yeah, terrible, terrible, really terrible, 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 terrible. Yeah. terrible stories. Yeah. It's nice to put some some names to them, though. If not, we always hear of the numbers, and it's it's nice to hear the personal stories as well even if they're horrible it's sort of a way to give some recognition to the victims right yeah. not just say a number of how many people were dead or etc but just to have this to listen to the stories that keep our memory alive about things that should never happen again yeah yeah absolutely yeah uh, it was uh, kind of uh... Yeah, we don't want this happen anywhere in the world. That's uh, our mission, isn't it? I think. Uh, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, yeah, it's our mission, and uh, this is uh, what we are fighting for. Certainly. I know where Ellie, where you you say that uh, man who like, cuddling his baby, Omar. You you you're talking about Omar Khawar, is that right? Yes, Omar Khawar. Yeah. Omar yeah, Khawar. Yes, exactly. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. This is the. Uh, yeah, he died for to save uh, his baby, and that was mm-hmm. uh, that became the kind of uh, the symbol of Halabja. Mm-hmm. And you, you still, if you go anywhere, when they remember about mm-hmm. Halabja, they uh, put the picture of Omar Khawar, how the people like uh, tr- struggled to save their family mm-hmm. and their baby, and how f- hard it was. And uh, mm-hmm. really, it's uh, very emotional when you go and look at the stories. Like the, imagine, like five thousand people suddenly die. You know, no like, horrible. Yes. And people didn't. Yes. I, unimaginable. I was, yeah, unimaginable. Um, I edited a special uh, uh, issue of the journal Genocide Studies International called Genocide and the Kurds. And we had a, um, a wonderful contribution by somebody who also lived through Anfal and survived. Mm-hmm. Um, but he mentioned that uh, in, his, in his piece that um, people didn't know what to do with chemical attacks. And that's something I had never mm. thought of. But I mm. thought my family and I, we wouldn't know what to do if someone just suddenly bought, dropped bombs Is it be- uh, with chemicals in them that kill you. Is it better to go mm. inside or to go outside, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where do you go? And so people were running inside where they would just get completely, right, 
uh, subsumed by the by the chemicals who would, that would get trapped, yeah, 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 right? But yeah. it makes sense. You run inside. You think maybe you'll save yourself. You're protected. Yes, mm -hmm. you're safer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, horrible. Yeah. I I can't remember all about. It. We can we can have a like completely one podcast on what's happening there during Anfal campaign. One hundred eighty two thousand people died, and it was uh, I I remember when they were transferring all these people, and because I was too too little, I couldn't understand why they are doing on this. In the nineteen, like I was kind of seven, started from when I was only six uh, years. Wow. And then it, yeah, it went on until I was 10 years. And then my house was destroyed twice. Really? Because of that, yes. Because oh, my um, God. Yeah, because we're in the village. And then they collect. And then they put, uh, uh, brought all us into collective towns. Hmm. And then, yes. then suddenly, like, the collective towns then brought uh, further into the south of Iraq. Um, it's, it's horrible. Hmm. But you can have a whole, you know, the whole Terrible. podcast. Terrible, yes. Yeah. That would be very... Yes. Yeah. yeah, I think we should. Yeah, should. one one image that never goes uh, out yeah. of my uh, sight is like about these, uh, you know, the animals, those mm. animals uh, who uh, mm. were left out without any uh, food and. Yes, it's you true. Know, one doesn't yeah. think of that, right? Yeah, one yeah. thing oh, ne never being, goes out of my sight. The animal. So yeah. they were starving. Uh, uh, they they were. Oh yes, uh, yeah. So they, they they you know they had wounds on their body, and I know oh, one girl, oh. the guy, he was like going and treat them, and then I still have a big respect for him. How on that time, on that day, like he was thinking about getting all them, you know, first aid uh, things, and then uh, medical uh, uh, um, equipments go, and then be, you know try to um, treat them in. Yeah. as much as he wow. could but yeah that's that's an amazing yeah. story isn't it of someone yeah. who has the presence of mind during something like that to worry about animals and then yeah, yeah and then organize was... himself to help them yeah. those are those those stories in genocide in the midst of genocide one sees them all yeah. the time it's really remarkable yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, those are beautiful stories. Yeah, yeah. Well, mm -hmm. I think we should definitely do a whole a whole yeah. podcast on Halabja and on Anfal. Maybe yeah. one for each, uh, because Certainly. they were in, mm -hmm. intertwined but separate processes. So yeah, and yeah. to bring attention to yeah. these forgotten genocides. Um, in fact, those could that could be sort of a series. You know, forgotten genocides. Forgotten a genocide. series of That's a series a of podcasts. Idea. Yeah. That's okay. <laughs> so stay tuned, everyone. We'll be doing that. Yeah, sorry, Hashman. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I continued for four years. Yeah. Four or five years. You know, each time they yeah. were bombing and then transferring some people from different villages. So, yeah. uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a very long story. And uh, uh, I think it's the least covered uh, mm. area. So mm. we, we can inform our more about this. To, yeah. um, uh, our our um, audience. It's a very good idea, Hashman, and thank you for sharing your personal experiences yeah. a bit today yeah. as well. This is a very uh, personal podcast for all of us, I think, in different ways, right? And so people will yeah. slowly be learning about that as well. Mm, but we're yeah, driven. We're absolutely. driven by by personal as well as universal um, commitments. We yeah. have we have these personal experiences, and I think. Um, we do have our podcast organized, but sometimes it's just, you know, it changes and yeah. some stories yeah, will yeah. come out. And I think it's nice, too, because the audience will will uh, get to know us a little bit yeah. more. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. 
exactly. who we are and our stories, etc. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And what, what, yeah, what's the driving force behind this uh, project? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. So true. Mm-hmm. So true. Yeah. So true. <laughs> well, I just have two um, bits of news. One is that Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, recently condemned the destruction of clinics in the Tigray region of Ethiopia. This is an ongoing conflict that um, uh, that there's very little news about and there's very little clear information because the region is very hard to access, if not impossible, for foreign journalists. Um, Médecins Sans Frontières says the attacks on its clinics were um, deliberate and intentional. Um, And it looks like much of the violence being committed in this region is now being committed by the Ethiopian government forces and the Eritrean army. Um, This statement by Médecins Sans Frontières follows a statement last week by the U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken uh, that there are acts of ethnic cleansing, is the term that he used, going on in Tigray against the Amhara people there. Um, the Amhara people have been claiming that these acts of ethnic cleansing, to use Blinken's term, are in fact genocide uh, by various armed forces in the Tigray region, including the Oromo Liberation Army and the Tigray People's um, uh, Liberation Party. So we'll be we'll be keeping on top of that as much as possible. For anyone who wants more information, there's a lot on Ethiopian um, and Amharan Twitter. So you find those accounts, and um, and you could stay somewhat up to date since since it's since it's not regularly in the news. Um, a second bit of news is that Azerbaijan has been conducting joint military exercises with Turkey. Um, uh, this is after uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan were involved in a war at the end of last year over the disputed territory of Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, in response to these military exercises, Armenia has announced that it will also be conducting military exercises, and there is some fear that there's going to be a resumption of military conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Um, Azerbaijan, of course, being supported by Turkey. Azerbaijani President Ilham Aliyev has threatened, actually, Armenian integral Armenian territory in the Siunik region with talk about what he calls a Zankazur corridor between Azerbaijan proper and the smaller territory called Nachichevan, uh, through which Armenian territory actually goes. And so this would involve this creating the Zankazur corridor would involve um, an invasion of uh, territories, the territory of Sionik, which is an integral to the independent state of Armenia. Along those lines, over 30 U.S. representatives uh, in the United States joined the House Intelligence um, Committee Chair Adam Schiff, who's a Democrat from California, in introducing new legislation calling on Azerbaijan to immediately release the over 200 Armenian prisoners of war that it is still holding in Azerbaijan from the reports of those who have have um, up to this point, the few that have been released, they're being kept um, 
under pretty terrible circumstances and and including um, circumstances of torture. Most recently, one of the most recent captives to be released is a woman who has gained international headlines, Maral Najarian, a Lebanese-Armenian, um, who was released to her two children and her family after spending four months um, in an Azerbaijan high-security prison near Bak- Baku, despite the fact that she was an Armenian civilian. Okay, so that's it for the news. Um, today, we have the honor of speaking, Irena and I have the honor of speaking in more depth with our colleague Hoshman uh, about some of the work that he's been doing, um, especially on Turkish foreign policy and security issues in Iraq and its surrounding region. So what I'm going to do is, is just hand this over to you, Hoshman, to make a few comments to get our discussion started um, about this work that you've been doing and to share with our audience things that, that you think are important. Oh yeah, thanks, Ali. Um, yeah, I was just thinking about uh, what uh, um, you've just uh, discussed in the news about uh, Turkey and Azerbaijan, and uh, it's very related to mine because uh, I think it's more to do with the kind of uh, Turkish foreign policy and its uh, ambition to expand its territorial control beyond Turkish border, isn't it? And uh, this yes. is not only through um, by Directly, Turkey wants to do that through its army, but uh, uh, through proxies or maybe some allies like um, the head, uh, the president of Azerbaijan. And um, really, this is kind of um, um, just a couple of days ago, but on the 11th of March, um, after nearly years, um, uh, well, it's about three, four years when Turkey began and it was the first the first attack was 2016 when he attacked the north of Syria and um, so it says that um, Turkey stated that there was um, uh, doing the inclusions into Syria and attacks the area because um, of uh, the uh, terrorist organizations and um, now um, just on the 11th of March uh, I think um, the European Parliament uh, issued a resolution for Turkey to withdraw um, its forces in the region. So it's the, the Turkish policy in the region is uh, um, very controversial and has been controversial, but especially since 2011. And uh, that controversy started when, as soon as the uh, war in, in, in Syria started, in the uprising in Syria started, and um, it was uh, the kind of... Uh, um, the aim was to topple Assad down and uh, for its crimes, uh, for its bad uh, uh, treatments of its citizens. But then um, later it came out to be um, a completely a different war. And then from 2013, uh, Turkey started to um, support the groups uh, that are related to Muslim Brotherhood. You know, uh, remember in 2013, there was a kind of... Yes. Um, Muslim Brotherhood for the first time they managed to get into power in um, Egypt and then later the the news and then the whole situation upset 
uh, Saudi Arabia, and then um, then Saudi Arabia then helped uh, the new president of Egypt to, um, you know, whether it was a kind of plot or carried out the coup. So um, I don't know how it happened, but then finally um, they managed to. Um, toppled the Muslim Brotherhood uh, government, and then uh, now Sisi is in power. Mm -hmm. So that really um, upset Turkey and angered uh, Turkey, um, not um, against what happened in Egypt, but against Saudi Arabia. So since then, the two sides, although they are both Sunnis, isn't it? So Saudi Arabia supports the Sunni sect of Islam, but now uh, Turkey supports another sect, which is called Mm -hmm. Muslim Brotherhood. Mm -hmm. So that kind of, um, this is kind of became a, not rivals between um, the Turkey and Saudi Arabia, but be, became the rivals between the groups who supported them, acted as proxies in the region, especially in the north of Syria and later in Iraq as well. So, um, you know, remember then ISIS began um, its expansion um an advancement in Syria then after it was separated from another group called Chapat al-Nusra yes, um, yes, yes. so mm-hmm. yes yeah so it was very famous um and then Abu Bakr Baghdadi then um uh, later uh, with Jabhat al-Nusra they had the kind of issues and tensions then completely ISIS separated from it and then from that then then the, the um uh, Turkey's behavior started to change, um, especially when ISIS went to a Mosul area and then invaded Mosul on the, uh, um, um, controlled Mosul on the 10th and 11th of June 2014, and later on the uh, 3rd of August attacked the Sinjar or Shingal area, um, and then also the Christians lived there, and then you know multiple. Uh, multiple um, ethnic and uh, religious groups live in those areas. So there was a kind of uh, connection still going on between uh, ISIS. So why, why, you know, just imagine like how uh, a group in the middle of nowhere, they just come and then suddenly rise to power and then they can invade the whole land, the size of Britain. Exactly. Sorry to interrupt you. A second, Hoshman, yeah. the economic support a group has to have to all of the sudden invade enormous amounts of territory with their own military, crossing borders, taking all over. I think it's, uh, it's uh, the way Turkey, sorry to interrupt you, you can continue, Hoshman, in a second. I just had a, a thought that it's, um, it's, a, it's a, the way that Turkey works is very, it's in the hidden. And it's very interesting yeah. because it's very difficult to accuse directly either Turkey or Turkish individuals, right? And I think this is reproducing exactly in the conflict that Eli mentioned before in Armenia, Artsakh or Nagorno-Karabakh. And uh, so I just wanted to say that that um, this, this sort of this panturchism that Turkey is trying it's done. It's been done in a very uh, good. I'm not saying it's good, but it's very. It's done in in a way to fool everyone because it has supported economically individuals and groups. They have taken over much of the territory in the Middle East. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this is a question. And uh, okay, if you question anyone, how are how ISIS? We know how to. It was developed. 
because I remember at the time uh, they, uh, some of the ISIS militants first came from Iran into the Kurdish area through Halabja area. Hmm. And then in, that was in 2003, right? That's like yeah. m- long before this ISIS came about because at the time they were called, I think, Janud al-Islam or Ansar al-Islam, okay? So then they grow slowly, slowly. They took advantage of the situation in Iraq, you know, the turmoil of what happened. But in 2011 and then later in 2013. But the, the, they never had a control over that, those territories mm. because in 2003, America, like, attacked them by missiles through in, in a, um, um, it was a Mediterranean Sea all the way to, um, attacked all, um, the Ansar al-Islam near Halabja, and uh, then they died out. Uh, they never came back through that region. But then suddenly they came, uh, you know, they revived in uh, Sunni areas near Mosul. But what the question is, right, how this came about, like, as I said, you know, they, they controlled a large area the size of UK, the whole in less than one year, and then 10 million people under their control, and suddenly from few hundred people ra- the, uh, rose to... 100,000 militants. So yes, where yes, all yes. these militants came from? Right. Where did they come from? Right? right? Mm-hmm. They all came from Turkey. Right? They mm-hmm. all came from Turkey. And then they passed through the border of Turkey to Syria. And then like about 30, 40,000 militants came from all over the world. And uh, there are a lot of, uh, 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 sorry, too, too many writings about it. I mean, one of the main writings that I'm always referring to is Ahmad Yayla. Who was uh, he's a professor now in one of the universities in the United States. But before that, he was the head of a branch of police and anti-terrorism in Turkey, and then he oh. ran away. Yeah, wow. and he ran away, and he spoke about it, and he said that how he was kind of punished uh, because he was against the um, policy of Turkey letting uh, those people, you know, yeah, allowing, yeah, like, Georgia, yeah, allowing yeah. you know, like in, yeah, in a public cross eye the border. and cross yeah. the wow. border. Wow. Yeah. So, and I'm always, and uh, Nafi Zahmat, he was a very brave journalist. Um, so I'm naming them so people can go back to what they have written. And uh, there is a lot Certainly. of uh, literature about it. So, um, and then now we are on the, uh, in August 2014 when they attacked the Yazidis. But the, the issue is, Turkey, it was part of NATO, but never attacked ISIS. Yeah. Right? Never, right. ever, right. never, ever attacked ISIS until sometime, like, um, kind of the whole coalition army came together and they, Turkey knew that this is the end of ISIS. Then he started <laughs> joining the, you know, the, the, the rest of the group because there was no choice, all right? But mm-hmm. imagine like all the, all the way from 2013 up to 2016, it attacked the Kurds in the north of Syria and called them terrorists yeah. and blocked them from accessing Turkey. Right. But mm-hmm. they, never, they never blocked ISIS to access Turkey from Syria or going from Turkey to Syria. So, you know, it's a kind of very strange. And all the way from up to date, we can, we, if you come back kind of 2015, then 16, it was like a horrible time uh, in those areas because multiple crimes committed, right? Crimes yeah. against humanity, war crimes, genocide, genocide, you name it, right? Yep. And genocide. And then we, I heard about crimes that I have never, ever uh, I've never ever 
uh, heard of it, mm-hmm. right? I, sorry about what I'm saying, but cannibalism, you know, like the, made the mothers to eat their babies. Yeah. Right? And that's Do you know a, that happened during the Armenian genocide? I'm just, you know, we don't talk about yeah. these things, like no one mentions them, but I was shocked when I heard about that that ISIS was forcing women to boil and eat their own children, but apparently this was also done during the Armenian genocide. So you see, there is a connection, right? Yeah, there's a a connection. connection Mm -hmm. Yeah, between all these type of crimes and these Mm -hmm. type of minds. Who really creates these type, you know, they they nurture their type of mentality. So, you know, it's it's a kind of, uh, you need to guess, but I don't think it's too hard, right? And I don't think it's mm-hmm. too hard. You can connect it back together. Yeah. So that was in 2017 when um, ISIS uh, was attacked after uh, the PMF established with a decree by Ali, by Sistani. Remind and our then, remind our listeners who the PMF is. Yeah, yeah, PMF. Yeah, I think we we uh, we referred to it last week in our podcasts, and then when now I'm going back to it. It's a Hajj al-Shaabi, isn't it? Yep. Yeah, Hajj al-Shaabi, mm-hmm. and uh, it's called Popular Mobilization Forces. Yes. And uh, they at first they were uh, established with a decree from a Shia supreme leader, uh, Sistani, who was met uh, by Pop uh, mm-hmm. you know, on the 15th. I think it was a was it? on the 5th of March. Sorry. Yeah. Yes. On the, yeah, on, the, mm-hmm. on the 5th of March. So, and they met together and then they discussed the peace uh, and bring stability to the region. So now that PMF is part of the Iraqi army, mm-hmm. right? It's, uh, it's mm-hmm. part of the Iraqi army. Uh, but um, they, um, they, they played a very great role in um, defeating ISIS in Mosul and also now in, 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 in Shingal. And the same similarly, I mean, Kurds in the north of Syria, did they play this role? And that's why people, the Turkey don't like them. Don't in the first place. They don't. Turkey doesn't like Kurds. Although, like 25 million of Kurds, more than that, leaving in Turkey, they are mm-hmm. still not recognized as Kurds. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. they are. They are the kind. You know, 25 million are called Mountain Turks, mm-hmm. and the Yazidis are not uh, recognized as Yazidis or Yazidis. They are mm-hmm. called atheists. Atheists. That means people without religion. Mm-hmm. So that means there is no way that that that's written in the con- in the constitution, and then everyone who lives in Turkey is a Turk. So it doesn't matter which identity you have, and this is part of this internal and constitutional legal understanding reflecting in the foreign policy. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. so that is implemented. So when it's implemented, then it does not recognize the Kurds in the north of Syria and it does not recognize the Yazidis because yeah. I um, there is one there is one news I can't remember when which came out but uh, Mr. Erdogan himself says that the Yazidis are part of the plot against Turkey wow so you know this is right and then while this is he said this when the Yazidis were um under the kind of genocidal campaign campaign by ISIS, wow. so you don't you don't want to say that to the people on your doorstep. The and Shangal, which is the main town of the Yazid, is only sixty kilometers far from the border of Turkey, only sixty kilometers. So and Turkey is part of NATO, so it has the responsibility. If you go back to law, it has the responsibility to prevent. Yeah, mm-hmm. okay, yeah. to prevent genocide. Yeah. You know, and uh, 
punishes those uh, ISIS who came through Turkey and then to Syria, and then they should have been punished. Because, I mean, the main, the aim of the Genocide Convention, 1948, is to punish and to prevent genocide and punish those who are accused of uh, committing genocide. Well, it shouldn't allow them first right to cross the border. Yeah. I remember I was yeah. in, uh, and this is a personal story as well, I remember in 2015, when I met Elisa actually, remember Ellie, in I July do. 2015, I went to Turkey for a conference and then we met in Armenia. No, at first we went to Armenia and then I, I went to Turkey and I had a week in between and I stayed in Istanbul in between the two conferences, right? One was on, on the IAGS conference and of the International Association of Genocide Scholars and the other conference was on on legal education right um, so I had a week and I stayed in Istanbul and it was very it, it already the the ambiance like the French would say but the mm -hmm. environment was a little strange a little bit strange and I wake up one day and I read the news and a thousand ISIS uh, militants and sympathizers were united in one of the main squares, publicly speaking, wow. um, in one of the main squares of Istanbul. I oh will never God. forget that. Yeah, I got messages from Ooh. my friends telling me, be careful, be aware of the situation. And it didn't seem, Istanbul seems like a safe, safe city, to be honest. It's, it's a wonderful city. Um, but at that moment, it felt like everything was changing. Mm. And it you know, if a country allows that, that public manifestation of of hate and calling on war and calling on killing the enemy, etc., publicly, then you're setting sort of the future path of your public policies, your international public policies, right? Yep. So it just reminded me of that. That was July 2015, and then mm -hmm. it was like what came Yeah, I remember the Hagia. Yeah. yeah. The Hagia Sophia. It was farther away from what that Farther said. away, yeah, but it's still it's a little continuation bit farther of the same. Than, yeah. But it's a continuation of the same policy, isn't also, it? Internally. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, internally. And the um, identity of it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So now, it. Yeah. if I if I just uh, cross over to Iraq of what's happening to Iraq and then how Turkey is trying to influence its foreign policy in the region. Um, so he has like multiple channels to do it, right? One of them is through families who are very powerful. You know, for example, the KDP, Kurdistan Democratic Party, the Nujefi family in you know in in in, in, in Mosul area. So they and Turkey has established Islamic uh, Islamic uh, parties in the north of Iraq, so they can win more votes. And uh, they have taken control of most of the media, the powerful media there. So they, they and then they have tried to um, establish many universities and then private schools. Uh, so it's a kind of Turkification of those area. Mm -hmm. Apart from the fact, in two, do you know, in 2013, in 2000, the, the export and import between Iraqi Kurdistan and Turkey, it was it, it reached about 13 billion dollars with Ooh. it's like a small you know if you, if you compare this this small region is four or five people million yes. living there a million so yeah. yeah and then those 13 or 14 um billion sorry they say million or billion billion 
billion. Yeah, billion. Yeah, exactly. So he was billion. Yeah. So it's 14, it's 14 billion, billion dollars. Mm-hmm. And most, most of this money was the products going from Turkey to be sold in KRG, Kurdistan Regional Government. Hmm. So that means it's like the... Uh, trying to sell all its products in those areas, and the Kurdistan mm. regional government is completely controlled by the Turkish company. One thousand five hundred Turkish companies are operating in those area in a oh. small city, in two, 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 three small cities, right? And the only thing that the Kurdish regional, the Kurdistan regional government has to send to Turkey is the oil, mm. and for very cheap price. So yeah, basically, in, on the one side, takes the oil for cheap. On the other side, he has a very big market to sell anything that he wants. Wow. And that's 14 billion pounds out of a very small region, imagine. Mm-hmm. So that means it's not... not and that the, the production facilities in the KRG is uh, kind of nearly, I would say, is dead. Because everything is coming from Turkey and now in Iran too. I'm not talking about because Iran has a long border, but Turkey is mainly goes to Iraq. And that's why mm. Turkey wants to um, expand its territorial control over the Mosul area and the Halab area, which is the north of Iraq and north of Syria. Because imagine Turkey says, according to Misaki Milli, that means it's called. Misaki Mili, then it's called the Oath Compact. Uh, Compact, is it? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a kind of uh, an oath taken by nationalist uh, Turkish politicians in 1921, mm. just mm-hmm. after the uh, Ottoman Empire collapsed, that Turkey should be bigger than its oh, it's the its, its its territory now, and that should be the wilayet of Mosul which um, means the north of Iraq, and we lie mm-hmm. off uh, the north of Syria, which is like Halab and some uh, the, 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 the areas that north of Syria should be included in the current Turkish territory, and Turkey should be called Greater Turkey. Yeah. But yes, yes, Turkey, yes. yeah, so that part of attacking and um, militarily within in the north of Syria, because the Kurds there, they resisted this plan. So ISIS were helped to wipe out the Kurds, and Turkey. When ISIS died out, Turkey did it itself. So since 2016, three big invasions, and that's why big invasions um, plans carried out against Kurds. And then when Donald Trump uh, withdrew its forces, mm-hmm. you know, remember in uh, was last year, yeah. um, 2015, when mm-hmm. um, at the time when. Um, um, I think the Brett Magork was the special envoy of the United States in Iraq, and he resigned. He said that this is ridiculous. We just leave the Kurds out there, and then he's been our allies against ISIS for last years, and now we are going to leave them for the mercy of Turkey. So that's what happened. And then now, because the KRG is very well connected, especially the KDP with Turkey, um, it has not been kind of what we say hard invasion, but still the KRG and in the north of Iraq, there are 40 military bases there and about 20 20 intelligence offices. 
And then mm, they have created too many groups from Turkmen, from the Kurds, from the Arabs, and this is kind of proxies. And they have established so many, so many political parties to take to win uh, during the elections. And they started a kind of Turkification through colleges, through universities, through uh, schools. So imagine in this small area under this big influence, mm. what's going to happen? It cannot um, resist. Yeah. So this is a this is a kind of I don't know. I mean, we 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 don't have a there is a there is a literature about uh, cultural genocide, right? We we have this. Well, yeah. it's the so origins of. Yeah, it's yeah. sort of so it's the idea, yeah. eliminating so, uh, the identity yeah, of a group. So that's what yeah. looks like what Turkey is, is doing. It's doing that's that. why I, I like to call that also indirect colonialism, because Absolutely. it's not the, the colonialism yeah. we know from that with, you know, the invade and yeah. as the British Empire did, for example. But it's this indirect colonialism by universities, as you say, by getting involved in the universities and changing the history. What they do is yeah. a lot in a lot of they change the history, yeah. and, and they then, start give, trying to impose a different identity. And then economically, I like mm. also to add that it doesn't reflect the 30 billion of exchange that you mentioned. Doesn't reflect on the people because the people are very poor in the region. Actually, yep. the, the yep. common person very very poor. So those yeah. 40 billion or 30 billion reflect that the countries are very wealthy. It's just it's not uh, properly. Uh, reflected on on the communities uh, who are in yeah. really difficult conditions. So you just remind me something very interesting. You know, in 2003, uh, Turkey was asked to attack Iraq uh, mm -hmm. with the coalition army. You know, it was led by America. Is that right? Mm -hmm. So Turkey didn't say, "I'm not going to attack," but sneaky, sneaky, <laughs> sent its companies in 2002. Right in 2002, <laughs> sent its company to look for oil in the north of Iraq. So a year before uh, the U.S. did attack, it has already exploited the area. You know, so and by 2011, it had enough and sent some of the companies back to the British Petroleum and some other companies. So it's very and because the it the Kurdish people are landlocked. It obliges most of the leaders there to invest their money in Turkey. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so they have no choice. You know, they, they have to listen to Turkey because all most of their money is uh, uh, invested in Turkey. So imagine like these type of policies and tricks and techniques and, I don't know, tactics, whatever you call it in politics or, you know, we all these technical terms and... Now we can relate this back to Azerbaijan yeah. of what happened in Azerbaijan and Artsakh, right? Mm -hmm. And then even even in Afrin, mm -hmm. after it was invaded, there was offices to create some kind of jihadists who participated in the war against Armenia. Yeah. And they were they were paid because it was they were they were telling them, Okay, we pay you more. So some of them were paid one thousand euro, others if they were if they couldn't be agreed, okay, we will pay you 1,500 euro. So most of the jihadists were sent um, with better money to go to war in Artsakh against Armenian army. And we, they were coming from 
you know, yeah, they were coming from those areas. They were recruited. So it's, 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 it's a very interesting area. It's very deep, complicated, multiple dimensions. And you can see that in Libya, in Greek, and now in Yemen, in everywhere. But I think we have so many podcasts in the future. We go through them one by one of what is, you know, the crimes committed, especially the genocide one. Yeah, and yeah, I think so. shining a light, that's really important. And shining a light on Turkish foreign policy will probably become a kind of core preoccupation of our podcast, I would say, uh, because Turkey doesn't seem to be backing down from its, you know, dreams of greater Turkey or pan-Turkic, pan-Turanist dreams anytime soon. Um, and it, you know, it seems increasingly to be given carte blanche by uh, European nations, the United States, NATO. Uh, so we know from the past, those of us who study genocide, what the outcome of those green lights can be. It's it's a huge concern, I think. Turkey's foreign policy, yeah, what it's already certainly. done and what it what it's planning to do. And we saw, you know, it was it was remarkable the similarity between the atrocities committed during the Artsakh war against Armenian soldiers mm -hmm. and civilians yes, and the yes. atrocities committed by ISIS against Yazidis and Christians. I felt like, you know, history recent history was just repeating itself. Uh in, in those atrocities, the stories that were coming yeah. out of Artsakh were just reminiscent, weren't they, Irena, of stories that yeah. we were told when we were in when we were interviewing survivors in Iraq in 2016 and 2017. Certainly, yes, certainly. And what happened in Artsakh or Nagorno-Karabakh recently also reminds us of, of the Armenian genocide. It's repeating totally. the history again. Totally. And I think talking about that, you know, the interconnected genocides. Mm -hmm. And in this particular case, we have the, the criminal, right, yes. I would say. And uh, it's very clear. Um, unfortunately, what is appalling as well is the impunity, the level yeah, of impunity. Um, not only, I mean, everywhere. I, I, I mean, even if it was covered by the media, it's, it's, it's very, it's covered in a small way and in a very shallow way. And then, of course, like the actual impunity, accountability, the, the judicial accountability that everyone claims for is just inexistent. But I guess it's a consequence also of, of the impunity of the Armenian genocide, right? Yeah. And uh, exactly. It reproduces. If you are guilty of something and nobody judges you, like Turkey was at that moment, well, the Ottoman Empire, and what happens afterwards? And then you continue to reproduce that violence. Absolutely. You, you won't be tried. So. It's a matter of policy. It becomes part of national identity, and it becomes an accepted, justified, exactly. legitimate form of policy. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, um, you know, these proxies, when they have these proxies, they don't need to themselves to get involved with the crimes. So yeah. these proxies is becoming a kind of a tool for them to exactly to be used. And because these proxies are kind of, I, I don't know, organizations today, they have a name. Tomorrow they change their name and they are not yeah. as an entity accountable in front of international yes. courts. Right. Mm -hmm. And they're it's very difficult to connect. That's the problem. They could be individually. People can be held accountable. The problem is how do you connect that with the Turkish power, right? How do you connect these proxies that you're mentioning, these individuals with Turkey, with the government? 
how do you connect them with the actual responsible individuals? So yeah, that that's is... why this happens with, sorry, Heli. No, please. Business and human rights, for example, the business that violates human rights, sometimes they get a branch with another name, with another registration in a developing nation, for example, although, you know, we don't like to use the word somehow we have to, but, and then there is a, is a head organization somewhere else, but it's very difficult to connect those two companies, those two businesses. And here is the same situation. What is the evidence that we have that actually Turkey is paying a certain individual? That's what we need in order to hold Turkey accountable. But I guess it could be held accountable for other things, you know, and like uh, policies, international policies, right? I mean, we should aim at that at least to to put some kind of stop to this Turkish expansionism that it's 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 everywhere and it's been now for for uh, almost 20 years yeah. besides the ones before right yeah. in recent history i mean yeah. in recent time yeah and if you think about i mean this yeah. is a discussion we've had before that you know the law tends to go after uh, the low hanging fruit Right. So these lower level foot soldiers of these enormous regional and global uh, conflicts by in regional and global powers who are very rarely brought to justice on their exactly. own. And if you think of the number of people that have been displaced in Syria, Iraq and eastern um, Turkey, there's just an unending reservoir of destitute young men, largely, right? It'll be young mm. men to to man these proxy armies and these, you know, these sort of semi-legal militias and whatever else and to, to become kind of permanent, permanent mercenaries for whatever yes. power in mm -hmm. the region wants to use them. It's a nightmarish situation. Um, yeah. And there's so many people profiting off of chaos. Certainly. That's, that's what's so harmful, mm -hmm. yeah. right, about, yeah. about this realization of what's going on there. There's just so much money in this chaos. Mm -hmm. And there's so little money and so little investment in peace. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Certainly. Hmm. Yeah. Certainly. That's very unfortunate. And... Uh... It's it's the uh, it's the reality we try to fight yes. against. Right? <laughs> That's what we all have to fight against. Yes, this yeah. is the call to arms. This is the call to arms portion of our podcast. <laughs> Let's fight impunity. Yeah. Yeah. After listening to all of this and having these thoughts, one thinks, "Oh, there's nothing I can do." But, but hey, there no, is. no, 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 no. There is. No. You have to stay no. positive. It is our there responsibility is. to stay positive. If we give up, then then. Then, then basically, you know, we're giving up our responsibility as human beings to protect one another. Yeah, so. Exactly, exactly. And yeah. I do we believe have, there's a the lot of, of people who, 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 want to, who want to work for that, uh, for good and yeah. for peace. I, I think would there's bet many, that, many don't individuals. you think the majority of human beings on the planet Certainly. want to Certainly. work for peace and care Certainly. about and are invested in one another's welfare? Yeah. I think Certainly. so. I think it's just maybe they're not in the correct places, right? Yeah. <laughs> in places of, of power. decision of dealt with, are, are occupied by the wrong people, probably. Totally. So totally. that's why we have to, in the grassroots, we have yeah. to unite to to put a stop to this, to fight yeah. against this, certainly. 100%. <laughs> that's right. We have to create yeah. a, grass, a global grassroots movement 
that puts an end to this nightmare and this foolishness that and human beings have, have been engaging uh, in. We have two great women, and I'm walking behind them. Yeah, bring all these voices together. We, we like Hoshman so much. <laughs> Well, you know, I think, folks, this was, Hushman, thank you so much. This was such an interesting discussion that, um, you know, and we've gone on almost for an hour here. So I think what we'll do is we'll take the what's your view section of this podcast on the pandemic and inequality and just raise that issue on, on another podcast. We'll discuss that at another time. What we can do, I would like us though um, to talk a little bit about uh, news from Iraq, right? There's one news item in particular we want to have a short discussion about. Um, at the end of most podcasts, we will be updating you on uh, the, you know, um, uh, new developments in terms of Iraq and its region. So, Irena, do you want to introduce that? Yes, sure, sure. Um, yeah, today we also cover a little bit uh, of the Middle East as well, but we, we will try, we'll, we'll do our best to bring other regions of the world, of course. But we do have this Iraq update as a segment. And today I just want to bring out a very controversial controversial news. Uh, it was, um, I found it on The Guardian, the newspaper from the UK, and um, it um, it explained that a few Yazidi women, a CD, Women, about nine of them, met with 12 children of them. Um, finally, there is a quite controversy because uh, the Yazidi women had these children in captivity as a consequence of the sexual rape. abuse committed by rape, yes, committed by um, ISIS militants. Uh, many of you are probably aware that a lot of Yazidi women were taken captives for, for a long time and many of them were subject to sexual violence. Uh, as a consequence of that, many of these women got pregnant um, and therefore had their children. However, the Esidi community in general, the leaders of the Esidi community, at least of what we know, are against these women reunited with the children. The Esidi community has said that the women are welcome back, however, the children are not. And if the women decide to stay with their children, they would have to then leave the community. So as you all can see, this is a very, very difficult scenario, a very controversial one. And I think it does reproduce, as Elia and I were talking before, actually, the podcast, it reproduces the circle of violence started and division started by ISIS. Um, I'm sure you guys agree with me on this. And it perpetuates the violence that of which the entire society of Iraq has been a victim of for, for many, many years. So I don't know if you have any insights of this. This was very recent. Well, can uh, you read the quote? Read that that amazing quote yes, that you I'll read me. Read this because I just want to I want to say that you know this is a change in policy in my understanding. And Hoshman, you can um, Hoshman, you can um, uh, you can probably fill this in a little more than me. But my understanding was that the Yazidi leadership, after this genocide by ISIS um, started. Uh, was trying to find culturally appropriate ways to incorporate women and their children born of rape and born of genocide back into the Yazidi community. 
Um, and, you know, maybe we should get on. There's, a, there's an expert in this, Thomas McGee, who's actually written about these efforts and the ways in which Iraqi law is not well set up to deal with these children. So, for example, in UN refugee camps, uh, women who were... Um, uh, liberated from captivity from ISIS who were returning with children that were fathered by ISIS militants were forced to register their children or encouraged to register their children with Iraqi authorities, which essentially registered them as Muslim when children's fathers are not known. Uh, uh, the children are immediately registered as as Muslim. And that, of course, further divides the children from the Yazidi community. So I think there were many efforts going on. And so it's so striking to me. And it's really a tragedy, I think. That's my personal opinion, that, uh, that now these children are being rejected because this is just a further, and as you're saying, it's furthering ISIS genocide of the Yazidi community by, by creating divisions amongst people who could be Yazidis, right? So creating new divisions um, and, and new pain. So Yes, uh, yeah. it would be great, actually, Ellie, to have Thomas McGee come and, and explain to us and to the viewers, of course, to the audience, our audience, a little bit more about this situation um, because it seems as if the leaders, the new leaders of the Yazidi community completely change uh, um, 180 degrees their, their, their previous efforts to include somehow these children that apparently because of the father not being Yazidi, the children would not be recognized as Yazidi, right? Mm. So I like to read the quote um as, as Eli asked me of the leaders of the Yazidi community, and they say, we don't accept this. This should be a Yazidi nation decision. The mothers are always welcome to come back home, but the children are not accepted. They can give their children to whoever they want, but they cannot live with us. Those people who brought back those children without asking Yazidis or Yazidi leaders will pay the price of what they did. There's no difference between those missionary NGOs and ISIS because they're playing with their girls and taking them from us. I'd like to explain that the reunion of the women and their children was um, was organized by an NGO who's working with, a, with in Iraq with this community. I'll give you the name in a minute. I just have to look for it. But it continues. Uh, um, neither me or the city community will accept those children. They are free to go wherever they want, except our community. They're no longer our issue and are free to make their own decisions. End quote. Right. Um, so it's it's a it's a very strong, um, a hard line. It's a hard line, exactly. It's a very, it's a very, very strong statement that seems to have no appeal, as we would say in the law. Um, it's, it's very, very difficult. Uh, the sorry, the founder, um, the name of the organization is Joint Help for Kurdistan. It's an NGO, mm. and it was uh, the founder is Nemam Gafodi, mm -hmm. uh, who organized this meeting between the city mothers and um, and the children uh, born in captivity and and uh, fathered by by ISIS militants 
You know, this is something we'll devote, I think, an entire um, segment to at some point in a future, in a soon, soon in a future podcast, uh, this whole issue of the rights of the children, you know, the rights of the women, and how, how they can be kind of squared with community rights, um, you know, and, yeah, the, and the views of rights, the leader yeah. and cultural rights, the views of the leadership. But really, it is around this issue of rape and the reintegration of women who were raped and the children who were born of rape, these issues in genocide can be some of the most destructive in the communities that were targeted by genocide in the um, generations to come. And, you know, it's um, heartbreaking. It's understandable in a way, the Yazidi position, because it's common after genocide. It's so common that women are ostracized if they've been raped, mm-hmm. that their children are not accepted. But I think that um, I, my hope is that the Yazidi leadership will think very hard about about this hard line that they're taking and mm-hmm. uh, the long-term effects this could have on the Yazidi, on Yazidi society and uh, the tapestry kind of Yazidi, of, of peaceful Yazidi life in common. Uh, because we've seen in past genocides that the the lack of care and the lack of um, acceptance given to women and children affected in this way by genocide is very, very destructive long term. Certainly. Hosh- Hoshman, let, you yeah. must have something to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, it's very sad. Yeah, upsetting. Mm. Um, yeah, it's uh, horrible. I think um, this is, is something to do with the identity and the cultural yeah. uh, and culture and principles of Yazidi yeah. um, religion religion mm-hmm. and uh, it's just too hard to say anything about it because on the one side you hurt the Yazidis on the other side you just uh, feel so bad for these children to be left out alone yeah. and they don't know and, and the they, women they are, they are, and the they women. Are, yeah and the women exactly and then they are innocent isn't it mm. because they didn't yeah. do purposely no. there's no intention behind it they just um, you know so, and I see Sorry, go ahead, Hashman. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, it's, yeah, yeah, no, no. There yeah, I just was going to say that ISIS, you know, this is this is a little bit of my research, but but uh, genocidaires are quite aware of, of social norms oftentimes in their target group, and they exploit them. They know what will cause long-term damage, you know, and so it's it's always a tragedy when the groups sort of play into the hands of genocidaires by remaining inflexible about issues uh, regarding uh, the conveying of identity across generations. You know, these sort of patriarchal norms can stand in the way of true um, rebuilding after the fact. It's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, very true. I thought about that. Um, actually, I don't know whether the ISIS knew exactly how the how this this cultural, uh, about this cultural issue in particular, but it looks like it did and um yeah. by not uh, by not dealing with this or dealing with it i mean they're dealing in a way i i in particular of course this is my personal opinion i don't accept but i, I do know that there are cultural issues and it's very very difficult to to give an advice on what mm-hmm. should be done right mm-hmm. so i think um we need to discuss this more. We need to invite this expert. That would be fantastic. And, and we need to think and have the people's opinions as well. Because yeah. I think um, that way we can all together make our minds on, on what on how to deal with this issue. Mm-hmm. Because it's, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a very important one. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's ongoing. It's, it's ongoing. ongoing. So, yeah. It's ongoing. Okay. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, how many? And it's Hashman, interrelated. The, yeah. What's the news of how many women are still, uh, women or men and children are still captives of ISIS? Do we know? Do you know a figure? Yeah. Uh, yes. Um, I mean, usually the men were killed. Right. So uh, yeah. yeah, they were right. just tested with their armpits. Um, so uh, whoever like over 13 years old, they were killed. And then these children were indoctrinated into um, ISIS way of uh, ideology. Yes. And then it's only the poor women were left um, and uh, still um, out um, well, about 2,500, I think. Wow. Left. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a lot. Too many. To, yeah, that's a, yeah, lot. I mean, a lot. And they, they don't know how to come back because in yeah. some ways they are acu- the accused of brainwashed. Yeah. Right? And there's yeah. an issue there as well. Yeah. Because when they come, they get interrogated of, uh, or they get questioned or investigated for being with ISIS for, for years. Um, and then, yeah, this, you know... Um, so much, each, so, so much so, so much so much so much yeah, yeah and then so much yeah, that's why we have so many suicidal uh, cases in the mm. past uh, years so painful because it's just they can't yeah so painful because uh, they can't take all this on and it's too much for them to think about it to cope with it and uh, they yeah, prefer terrible. they prefer to commit suicide Yeah, Yeah, Irene and I saw that we interviewed so many women who had been liberated from their captivity, you know, and that's a moment that you would think would be this wonderful um, celebration. But the life for them in the IDP camps was was really hard. And I always think of this one young woman, she probably was about 15 years old, who came in and all she did was cry for the whole interview. She just sat and cried and we asked her what she would like, and she said, a job. Do you know something to do other than sitting around mm-hmm. and, and thinking? Yeah. Because there were, mm-hmm. at that point, and I think still now this is largely the case, but at that point there were really almost no resources for women had, who, who had returned from captivity. There's just nobody was helping them. Yeah. They were returned. They were paired up with whatever surviving family members were in the camps, if there were any. And they were in their tents 24 hours a day thinking about what had happened to them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we need a lot of, you know, I think this shows how, you know, gender, like a consideration of gender and women's rights as human rights is really important if we're going to, um, if we're going to advance genocide prevention and respond Certainly. appropriately, you know, and humanly to, uh, to what happens to survivors. Yeah, what has yeah. Certainly. Yeah. I absolutely agree. Very well said, Ellie. I think if we continue reproducing these patriarchal patriarchal societies, we'll end up with more and more violence. Yep. And uh, that's something we need to address everywhere, right? But yeah. well, in this particular case, in in the Middle East and in mm-hmm. Iraq. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's true. Well, this is ending on a down note. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I yes. mean, I, with well, something called the anti-genocide podcast, it's going to be <laughs> down sometimes. <laughs> but um, well, I suppose we'll we'll. This is a good time to bring it to, to bring this discussion to an end. 
Um, And we want to thank everybody out there for staying with us. We want to thank our listeners. Uh, I hope you will consider uh, subscribing to our podcast on Patreon. We could really use the the support. Um, All of the proceeds for this podcast go to the Iraq Project for Genocide Prevention. You can learn more about us at iraqproject.org. That's iraqproject.org. Um, we exist to work on issues in Iraq related to genocide prevention, but also globally. So the Iraq Project works international, internationally to uh, prevent genocide. And we hope that you will also spread the word about our podcast and be engaged with us. So both at Patreon, Spotify, and at our website, you can send us an email and uh, get engaged with some of the issues we've raised and ask questions. I love Irena says, don't be ignorant. (laughs) I want to make that the motto of our show. Don't be ignorant. Was was it asking questions? It's uh, evidence that you do not want to be ignorant. Yes. <laughs> so show us the evidence. <laughs> yeah. And we love we love talking to people. And hopefully in the future we will figure out the technology of doing a live program so that you folks can either through chat or even calling in somehow ask us questions. So we're hoping yeah. to be able to do that. In the future, I'd like to I'd like to also thank uh, Rafi ah, for doing the you. production. Yes, for doing the yeah, production afterwards. <laughs> yeah, and thank you for helping thank us. Thank also our subscribers who have subscribed yeah. already for the support. Oh yes, actually we should read out their names. Let's do that at the very end. Thank you, Irena, yeah. for mentioning that. I am going to yeah. get their names. So we want to thank our three patrons right so we have three patrons now and we're very thankful to them and for the support that they're giving the iraq project we couldn't operate without their support and we want to thank tim langille nicholas who has not given his last name and ian schaefer lawrence we want to thank all three of you three men standing up for humanity and genocide prevention we want to thank you from the bottom of our hearts for your support Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so much for this. It's so important to us. So thank you. All right, everybody. So we are the anti-genocide coffee break, a multinational podcast. You can find us on Patreon and on Spotify, as well as on our website, IraqProject.org. We are signing off.